Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts, chapter 6, returning back to the passage that uh, Philip read. And it is not a typo. It is Acts 6, 8 through 7, 60. My theory is, if Stephen can do it in one shot, so can I. <laughs> Jeffrey. <laughs> exactly. I brought my water up here. I'm ready to go for a while. Now, we do have a lot to cover this morning, but I want to take it in one, in one chunk because I want you to see the whole thing. And if we take too long in it, you'll miss the whole thing. And there's a lot of stuff that he says here and a lot of things that I think will be very important for us to, uh, to get into. So let me just say just a few words of uh, just kind of introduction to set the table for where we are, and then we'll jump into it. And, uh, and I think you will find it to be uh, a very encouraging section of Scripture and hopefully see some things in here you haven't seen before. But where we are here in the book of Acts is that we've reached a turning point in the book of Acts. Theologians have taken the book of Acts and have divided it up into three sections, and I think that these three sections are pretty obvious to see, and I think that's an accurate way of looking at the book. In fact, Acts 1-8 kind of represents a great descriptor of the book of Acts when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. And the book follows that flow. In fact, the first section of Acts, Acts chapter 1, 1 verses 6, verse 7, covers the ministry in Jerusalem. And so we have this ministry there. We see the apostles going out. 20 to maybe 30,000 believers had, you know, had, had, had developed in Jerusalem at this point. It's an incredible ministry. But starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, we move into the second section of Acts, which describes the ministry in Judea and Samaria. And so you can see how it begins to flow, move out for these next few chapters where now you're beginning to see the gospel spread outside of just the Jerusalem center. And then it moves, the third section of the book, just to give you an understanding of it, shows around chapter 9, verse 32, all the way to the end of the book, it describes it, how it made its way to the Roman Empire, or the world at that point. How it just started to filter out into the broader regions. And so that's the movement and the flow. We're beginning this section here of, of how it moved out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And what God used to move them was persecution. And that's what we're going to see here is the persecution that came upon the church at this point and what, what, what prompted it, what caused this persecution. Because the reality, I think, and this is true as we'll see in the book of Acts, unless God puts a little bit of pressure on people, uh, we don't really seek God. I mean, right? It takes trials and problems to get you to start going, God, what are you doing here? And most of the time, when there aren't trials and problems, you don't wake up saying, God, what are you doing here? You're just doing and enjoying life. And then the problem comes, and then you start saying, God, what is happening? And then suddenly, our ears are tuned to God. And that's what goes on here. Pressure comes. The church now is forced to scatter. We're going to look at that pressure. And the pressure involved, this incident with one of the second-tier leaders, second leaders that, 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 that we just saw emerge at the first part of chapter 6, Stephen. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this whole experience today. And, and the outline's pretty simple, right? We're just going to get the setting. It's just pretty clear there. Then we'll see the sermon. And then the, the text itself gave me the alliteration, right? Because after that he gets, he gets stoned, so you got the stoning, right? So it's all right there. 
You can see it. And I want you to just to see a few things in here. The first thing that I want you, I hope that you get a chance to see, is some of Stephen's, what I call gospel logic. Stephen's understanding of the Bible. And how his understanding of the whole of the Bible allowed him to engage opposition. I want you to see that. I want you to see how Stephen exposed the sin of these people. But I also want you to see how grace was all over this whole thing and how Stephen's heart was a heart of grace and mercy in the face of opposition and how God used that grace and mercy to expand his church. So lots of things I hope that you get a chance to see here. But we need to jump into it because we've got a lot to cover. So let's first just get the setting. That's just kind of the end of chapter 6 here. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Just a few things to point out there. Remember when you see that word full, it's used a lot in Acts. Full of something means under the control of. So notice what Stephen's under the control of. Grace and power. Grace, giving something to someone they don't deserve. This will become very important because, and I'll point it out to you now, we'll we'll, we'll review it later, he's got people who are literally taking boulders and crushing him, throwing them at him, breaking his bones, seeking to destroy him. And you know what he's doing? He's saying, God, forgive them. He's a man of grace. Right? His enemies come, and his first thought isn't, I need justice, I need this, you're not doing this for... You know, he didn't fight for himself. He didn't fight for his rights. He didn't fight for what he deserved. He didn't stand there and say, I'm going to just stand opposed to you, because if I don't... you. He knew Christ is building his church. He knew that Christ is in control. These, these guys weren't. And so instead of fighting, he was a man of grace. We're going to see that. We're going to see him pray, and we're going to see the impact of that prayer. Very powerful. And, of course, he's also under the control of this power. Why? Because remember, we talked about signs and wonders in the past. Those things are always juxtaposed up against teaching. And the idea is Hebrews points this out to us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that these early leaders came out, and God was verifying their message with these signs and wonders. Because the issue here on the table isn't going to be the miracles that are being performed. It's going to be the message that he's preaching. And he's backing that message up with power. And so that's, that's kind of what's our, our description here of Stephen. Now let's look at what happened. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and some of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. A lot of little details in there. Let me just give them to you. First of all, we've got the synagogue of the freedmen. Some of you probably went, I never even heard of this. What is the synagogue of the freedmen? I'll explain it to you. Way back under Emperor Pompey, he took a bunch of Jews and he, and he made them slaves. And he, he abused these guys and, and, and they were eventually set free. And when they were set free, they kind of wore their slavery as a badge of honor. They kind of said, you know, we were those ones that were enslaved. It's kind of like those who, who went through a battle or those who, who, you know, maybe were imprisoned as a prisoner of war or something like that. And they come out and they say, you know, I was a POW. You know, everybody goes, wow, yeah, you, you know, we have a lot of respect for you. It's kind of this group. But this group had a very interesting theology, very similar to a lot of Jewish theology. But the theology was this. God only works in Israel. 
God's Spirit is only present in, in, in the temple in Jerusalem. And the key to life is to be in full obedience to the law of Moses. And so what they did is they established a synagogue, a teaching center in Jerusalem because they said this is where God is and we want to put our, our synagogue where God is. And so it was called the synagogue of the freedmen. It was, it, was, it was the synagogue developed by these POWs, if you want to call them that. And, and they had this very strong theology. And many people came from other regions to learn from the synagogue the freedmen. And so there were people from, there were Cyrenians and Alexandrians, which is Egypt. And there were people from Cilicia and Asia, that's up by Turkey. Now Cilicia had a very strategic city in it. You need to know this. Little Lucas kind of leaks out his, his storyline here a little bit. And Cilicia, one of the key cities in that area is Tarshish. Now does anybody know who came from Tarshish? Saul who's going to emerge at the end of this story. So the picture we're getting here now is we've got these guys, they're very devout, and you've got to remember this, God is only at work in Israel. His spirit only dwells in Jerusalem, in the temple. And you have to be in obedience to the law of Moses. And these guys were just devout. They believed this wholeheartedly. And among this group, as we're going to discover later, is Saul. Okay, so there's our setting, right? It's a, little, it's a little bit more. So now what happens? Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the whole people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. <clears throat> so what's going on? Stephen is in theological debates with these guys. And he's winning them. They cannot stand in his presence theologically. And he is just debunking them. So what do people do who are false teachers? They meet in little secret meetings. Right? And, they, and they sit down and they stir people up with lies. And they get all these lies going, all these secret meetings going. And then they come in and they, and they begin to tell their lies to people. And so these guys got a, a bunch of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, all that kind of all, and the elders all kind of worked up. And how do they work him up? They tell him, listen, Stephen is preaching against the temple. He's preaching against the law of Moses. He's teaching against God. Now, we know that the message of Jesus, he said, hey, you know, God's going to tear down this temple, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And the apostles understood this and said, do you realize something? Once Jesus died and rose, we don't need this temple anymore. And his spirit now dwells within you. And wherever you go, you're bringing the spirit with you. And this is their message. And they're saying, wait a minute. You cannot preach this message. It violates the temple and the sacrificial system. It violates the law of God. It violates our worship of God. And so they said, he is in rebellion to Moses and the law. Okay. Now we have verse 15. 
This is very important. Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, that is not intended to be like a precious moment. Okay? Not like, oh, you have the face of an angel. Right? That's not what that's saying there. Okay? Don't take this like ushy, gushy, mushy. Okay? What is happening? The accusation, you got to catch this, the accusation is that he's teaching against the law of Moses. And he's tearing down the temple. And as he's standing before the council, his face is shining bright. Why would God do that? Well, maybe some of you are thinking about a passage of Scripture. You might not know the address of the passage, but you might be thinking of Exodus 34, 29. Moses would go and commune with God. And when he was done communing with God, his face was what? Shining. It was bright. The people said, we can't even look at it. And he'd cover his face because he couldn't look at it. God, I believe, is doing the exact same thing right here. He's saying, no, he is not against the law of Moses. He's in line with the law of Moses. In fact, I'm going to actually put the little Moses sign on him. Here's the Moses tattoo. You get a bright face to show you you're with God. That's what's going on. There's this brightness coming out of him. All of these people should have realized that what he's saying is true. He is not teaching against God. He's not teaching that God it doesn't work. He's not teaching against the Spirit. He's not teaching against worship. He's not teaching against the law. He's in total continuity with the law of Moses. God is illustrating that before them. Okay. Now, that's the setting. Now let's go to the sermon. Okay? So you get the picture here. He's arguing with these people who think that God only works in Israel, that, that the law of Moses has to be obeyed, and that God's Spirit only dwells in Jerusalem in the temple. Stephen is arguing differently. They are saying that he is in opposition to God, he's in opposition to the law, and now Stephen is going to make his case. And Stephen, as I looked at his at his, uh, we wouldn't necessarily call it a sermon, it was his defense. As we look at his defense, he actually had a three-point outline. And so, I did Stephen a favor, and I alliterated it. Okay? Because it's a three-point sermon with, a, with an application at the end. It's great. And I'll probably go to heaven, and when I see Stephen, he'll say, why did you do that? Why did you give it a three-point outline? But it is there. And here's what he does. There's three things that he says. Right up front, he says, first of all, he deals with the place that God works. And he says, listen, I'm going to tell you that God doesn't only work in Israel. That's his first point of his sermon. The second point is he's saying, you guys have a pattern of rejection against the law of Moses. Don't accuse me of being against the law of Moses. You have a pattern of rejection. And then the third thing he says is, now I want to talk to you about the presence of God's Spirit. God's spirit actually doesn't dwell just in the temple in Jerusalem. So I'm going to talk about the place that God works, the pattern of your rejection, and the presence of God's spirit. And then his application is, you guys are the ones in rebellion to God and Moses, not me. 
So that's his sermon. We're going to walk through it. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through portions of this. I'm going to give you the outline up on the screen, and I'll read through portions of the sermon here. And, uh, and then my heart is to just set the table for you to go back and read it again. There's a few details I will be skipping along the way because I want you to see the big picture. But then when we get, but, but I, hopefully that big picture will help you see and understand the details as, as you seek to study it on your own. So let's deal with his first point. Stephen's first point is the place of God's work. And what he does is he deals with Abraham. Okay? So let's look at verses 2 through 8 for a moment. Let me read them to you here. 2 through 8. He says this. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land, belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that... They shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. So first thing he does is, listen, I'm going to tell you about Abraham. And he said, here's the key to this point. He says, God appeared in Mesopotamia. Now you might say, that really is not a real devotional point for me. Why is that a big deal that God... I'm just going to leave these glasses off here. I won't be able to see you real far in the back, but it'll be easier for me. God appeared in Mesopotamia. Why is that a huge point? Because they believe God only worked in Israel. Now, it's, it's pretty interesting. The point that Stephen's addressing is a point that sometimes people can get in, in our culture today where we might think God only works at Kishwaukee Bible Church. God doesn't work at that church over there. God, right? We can do the same thing these people were doing. And I, I, the reason why I'm giving you that illustration is to say you have to understand the tension. Sometimes we can put God in a box. And we can say this is the only way God works. It's clear. I've studied it. I've seen it. God only works this way. Stephen comes along and says, you guys have this box, and you think God only is here in this little piece of land. I'm telling you, Abraham was in Mesopotamia, and God started speaking to him. And not only that, then he moves to a second point. When Abraham lived and remained, he lived in the land, he remained as an alien and a stranger in the land. God didn't even let him build a house there. You think God's only at work in your little box? I'm telling you, Abraham didn't even set up a house there. He was an alien and a stranger. Not only that, when this law was being used, when circumcision was being given, these people weren't even living in the land. The law was even being exercised outside of the land. What's his point? His point is this. You have God in a box, and you think God only works in this little place? I'm telling you, when our whole nationality when god was forming us he did it all outside of this land you got to take god outside of your box 
Your box is too strong for God. God is bigger. It's too tight, I should say. God is bigger than your box. So his first point is dealing with this element that they only believed that God worked in Israel. That's why they built that synagogue. That's why they were there. That's why these people came from other countries. They had to be there. That's the only place. Okay. Now, he moves to a second point. This is his, really his strongest point of the whole thing. First, he's dealing with location of the work of God. God's working in places you wouldn't believe. That's his first point. Second point now is let's talk about obedience to the law of God. And he's going to show them that Israel has a pattern of rejection. The first thing he deals with is Joseph. Okay, look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. What's the first point? He says, now listen, when we look at Joseph, you got to realize Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. Now why is he saying this? He's saying, for a moment, he's going to start saying, for a moment, I want you guys to think about something. The people of God, the, the children of God, the Jews, have had a struggle with accepting the one that God has raised up to be the right one. When God does a work, our first response is to say, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You can't work that way. Right? In our culture, we might say, you'd never use that church over there. God only works in this kind of church. Right? We're, we're instant to say, no, God, you can't do that. It doesn't fit our theology, God. That's what he's saying, Joseph. So he says, now, first of all, notice, Joseph, the one that God raised up, was mistreated by his brothers. Now look at 11 through 16. Or I should say, we'll, we'll go through 10 through 16. And rescued him out of all of his affliction, gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our father could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. But on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they carried back to Shechem and laid him in the tomb that Abraham had brought for him, the sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. What's his second point? He's saying, now Joseph was our, the way of salvation. The very one that they resisted was actually the one who delivered our fathers. The one that you said isn't the one. The one that they said, this isn't the one. This isn't the one who should get the promise. This isn't the one who should get the jacket. This isn't the one who should get all of this. No, he's not the rightful heir was the one that actually God used to save our people. What's the subtle point Stephen's making? Jesus, the one that you rejected, is actually the one that's your Savior. Okay? Joseph had the way of salvation for the people, but they rejected it. But the rejection of the people against God's chosen one wasn't just with Joseph. It also was with Moses as well. The same pattern was seen in Moses. Okay? Let me start reading verse 17. 17 through 29. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and 
forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughters adopted him and and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking him down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them. They were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who who wronged his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. What's his point there? First point he's saying is Moses was rejected by the Jewish people. The one that God raised up to be the deliverer. The people said, we don't want it. That's his first point. Moses is there. But then he has a second point. And the second point is this. God appeared to Moses in Midian. Look at verses 30 through 35. Now when 40 years has passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and in a bush... When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groanings, and I've come down to deliver them. And now, I, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. All right, so now what's happening? Moses is rejected, first point he makes. Second point, but God appeared to Moses in Midian. Remember, he's working outside of Israel. And the ground was holy ground. He had to take his sandals off. And Moses was their deliverer. He was their deliverer. He was the one. But what happened? After Moses finally delivers them, after Moses finally delivers them, what happens? Stephen's third point about Moses, Moses is rejected by the Jews after the Exodus. They still rejected him. Look at verse 36 through 43. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will rise up for you, raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts. And they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols, to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years of wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphian, the image that made that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond 
Babylon. What's his point there? He's saying, listen, after they were delivered, they turned away from Moses and towards Egypt is what it said. They went back to the pagan worship of the Egyptians. He's saying, God raised up Moses to be their deliverer, and they rejected him twice. And they continued to reject him. They continued to reject him. Now that's Stephen's second point of his sermon. So his first point is, God is at work in places that are way outside of your frameworks. Second point, you guys have a pattern of rejecting the one that God has raised up. Now Stephen makes his third point. What's he going to deal with? He's going to deal specifically with a theology of the freedmen, which is that God is only, his spirit only exists in the temple. Nowhere else. So now he's going to make a couple of points here. The first point he makes is kind of a structural point. He says his first point under the presence of God's spirit is there were two structures in the Old Testament that God used. Okay? 44 through 47. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, with it, to, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Okay, now what's his point there? He's saying, if God only worked in a temple, then why was there a tabernacle? Simple question. If God only exists in this place called a temple, then why was there a tabernacle? Why was there this tent? And why was this tent moving around? And even David said, hey, I want to build you a house. And God said, no. Your son will do it. If you think God only does it this one way, why did he do it two ways in the Old Testament? That's the implication of his point there. Now we move to the second, and this is the, that's the setup to the, to, to the main point that he's going to make, which is that God does not dwell in buildings. Verses 48 through 50, which is the main point. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What's his point? It's pretty clear. How in the world could you say God only exists in a temple? That's his point. How in the world could you define it like that? You're like that committed. You have to like build this synagogue in Jerusalem because you think God's only here. Do you understand that God is not like the other gods? That he exists in some building in some location and we all got to make a pilgrimage to that place because that's where God is? You understand, God made the whole world. He sits in heaven and he puts his feet, figuratively, on earth. He's so much bigger. God doesn't live in the temple. We, as earth, exist in the presence of God. That's his point. God is so much bigger. Earth sits in the very essence of all that God is. The whole thing is consumed by him. He's everywhere. You never get away from his spirit. There's no hiding. There's no dark room in your basement you can get into where you're ever alone. God is everywhere all the time. 
That's what he's saying. Your theology is so narrow, is what he's saying, guys. See, here's the reality. You think God only works in Israel? If that were true, then Abraham would have never been called. Let alone Moses. You think that you're walking in the pattern of accepting God's chosen one? No, you're walking in the pattern of all those that have rejected God's chosen one. You think his spirit's only right here in this temple? In this one spot? All of creation stands in the presence of God all the time. That's what Stephen is preaching. That's his point. You see it? Now he gets to his application. He does not hold back. He has three points in his application. First point, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Wow. (laughs) It's like, whoo, that is a a way to close a sermon, right? (laughs) What's he saying? You're not in pattern with obedience to Moses. You're in pattern with your forefathers who resisted Moses. You're in pattern with Joseph's brothers who sold him off into slavery. You're just like those people who attacked Moses. You're the sons of Korah. You are the, or not the sons of Korah. You, you're like, the, like the, the brother and Aaron, Aaron and all those that resisted and Miriam and all those that resisted Moses' brother and sister, all those that just stood there and died. That is who you are. And this, notice these descriptors you use. You stiff-necked people. What does that mean? You're resistant. I believe this and I will not change. That's the idea. Uncircumcised in heart. What does that mean? It means your heart is still hard. It's a stony heart. It's not set apart to God. On circumcised ears, you will not hear the word of God because you stand in resistance to the Holy Spirit. Your frameworks are stronger than your belief in God. Second point he makes. Second point is, you're persecuting the sent one of God. Look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Okay, so let's do a little game here. How many, Jew, how many prophets actually lived and survived you kind of people? How many? It's easier to count those who lived than those who were killed. And you are walking in their steps, is what he's saying. Because Jesus, the ultimate one, the sent one of God came, And you said, kill him, crucify him. You stand in opposition to God. His third point, you are breaking the law of Moses. Look at verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What's he saying? The idea is that when when the truth came, there were angels there in the mountain with Moses. And he's saying, you know what? This very law came, came from the very hand of God. Angels delivered it. And yet here's the reality. You never followed it. Your ancestors never followed it. You're not following it. You are lawbreakers. So there's his sermon. God's at work everywhere. But there is this pattern of people that whenever God does something that says, no, you can't do it that way, God. That's not the way it should be done. 
and they reject it and they resist it. God's Spirit is not just in one location. We exist in the presence of God all the time. And so you are resisting what the Spirit of God is doing. You have persecuted the sent one of God, and you're in disobedience to the law of Moses. There's a sermon. Now, this sermon alone is not what gets him killed. Let's look at the stoning real quick, and then we'll wrap it up here. It's not what, this isn't the sermon alone. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So that's right. You could get the picture. You don't need me to unpack all the Greek words there. They are as mad as a human being can get. But they're not acting on this anger yet. They are just as angry as a human being could ever get. Because Stephen just called them out on their sin. And there is no way they can refute that. That is the best understanding of the Old Testament you can have at that moment. It's brilliant. But there's nothing they can say. He has silenced them. But then God does something. God does something to force these people to kill Stephen. This is what God does. Catch this now. Because you say, wait a minute. What are you saying, God? Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. All of a sudden, God appears to Stephen. And now he sees the Father and he sees the Son. Now, if you were completely under the complete control of the Holy Spirit and God the Father and God the Son revealed their presence to you, would you say something? Of course you would. Of course you would. And so he does, verse 56, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God reveals himself. Stephen goes, I'm seeing Jesus. You can imagine Stephen probably didn't say it kind of like mellow, like, oh, hey, by the way, I see God and Jesus. Right? You can imagine he's just enthralled at this moment. That's the tipping point. That's the tipping point to get him killed. Notice what happens. And he, full of he sees this thing. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. So what are they doing? He's saying he's seeing the Father and the Son. They are literally plugging their ears and screaming because they believe they're in the presence of blasphemy. They believe that, that they are being so holy that they will not hear blasphemy. So they plug up their ears, they scream, and they rush at them. Right? They're so holy, they're going to murder. Right? That's how holy they are. But God tips the scales to get them to rush Stephen. Right? God didn't have to show up at that moment, but he did. And they, he knew, God knew that that would prompt them to go after Stephen, and so they rushed him. So verse 58, and they cast him out of the city. Why? They don't want to kill him in the presence of God, because God only is in the city, right? They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So there he is. He's there. You know, he's from Cilicia. He's from Tarsus. He's there. I believe Stephen was the first evangelist he probably heard that he had to engage, right? This brilliant guy. And they, 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 they throw in rocks at him. Now look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So he's now, he's standing there. They're throwing boulders at him. He's falling to the ground. And what's he doing? He's praying that God would forgive them. Right? Now, none of us in our flesh could do that. Right? Because I've held, like, against, sins against people for a lot less. Right? No one has ever thrown a big rock at me trying to crush my head. Right? But yet, he's praying. He's interceding. God, do not do this. In the presence is Paul. Now, I'm sure, I'm doing some conjecture here, I'm sure that Stephen and Paul had some kind of conversation. And I'm sure Paul, fiery Paul, probably argued with Stephen. He was one of the people that was arguing. Just somewhat of a conjecture here. But Luke is setting this up for us. He wants us to get, get us a little understanding of Paul. The way Luke works is he always kind of introduces his characters early on, and you get a little background before they become prominent, and that's what's happening here. Little did Stephen know that when he was praying and interceding for forgiveness, that the man who would actually launch the worldwide missions movement was in his presence right there. One of those that was participating in the murder turns out to be one of the people to launch the movement. Could you imagine Stephen holding bitterness against this person? God is going to do what God's going to do. I don't think Stephen controlled God at this moment. But Stephen missing out on the opportunity to pray for his persecutor, believing not only that God can forgive, but God can do a lot. I I could just imagine if one of the Christians that was killed by an ISIS soldier, if they were praying for that ISIS soldier, maybe one of them could launch a worldwide movement into the Middle East and be the next Apostle Paul, coming out of ISIS. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine coming out of the persecution against the church could be the chief evangelists for the next move of God somewhere in the world. This is what he's doing. This is why he's full of grace. Somebody's throwing a rock at his head and he's saying, God, forgive them. God, have mercy on them. God, do not hold this sin against them. Do not punish these guys in hell for what they're doing. I know they're stiff-necked. I know they're uncircumcised in heart and ears. I know that they're in rebellion to the law of God. Save them. Save them. That is grace. And God answered Stephen's prayer. And in just a few chapters, the worldwide movement of missions will begin by a man who witnessed this whole thing. Incredible. So let's wrap it up. We made it through. Big chunk. I think it's the largest I've ever preached in my life. Big chunk. But what do we do with it? A couple things just to kind of think through, and then I've got some key points I want us to pull. But just to... Just in, in general, first of all, I, observations I've made is I, I've, I appreciate the fact that Stephen was engaging these people with the truth of the scriptures, the logic of the Bible. One of the things why we like to preach expositionally here, one of the reasons why I like for people to study whole books of the Bible and not just verses out of a Bible, is because there's a logic in this. And this particular logic fit his audience. He was preaching, speaking to his audience. And you can do the same thing. There are people out there who've got a lot of messed up ideas about God, a lot of messed up ideas about the world, and the answers are right here. And we have everything right here in front of us. And all of you are able to understand this and engage it at some level. It's all right there. There's a logic to the Bible, and that's 
what I want you to be able to get as Christians to see the logic of the scriptures. Second thing, though, that really has come to my mind is that God moved the tipping point for this persecution because the people needed to scatter. And sometimes without the persecution, you don't move. We don't move, right? We, we get comfortable. And, uh, and it's amazing how our prayer life kind of becomes non-existent when there's no crisis. And our, we stop listening. And God is going to move this. He did not want it to be 30,000 people in Jerusalem. God had a vision for the world. And he had to shake them up to get them to see that. But there are some lessons here. There's five lessons that I want to pull, and then I'll be done here. The five lessons are this. First one, as I read through this story, a lesson that I learned is that God doesn't want us to sit here and do nothing with the truth we've been given. Stephen engaged with his truth. God allowed all this to happen so the truth would go forth. This is what it's about. It's about that kind of movement. It's why we always talk about engaging here, engaging in people, engaging relationships, this kind of thing. It's, you know, this is a passion of God. It's a passion of God. It's why we're here. Second, God uses persecution to accomplish his work. I want us to really reflect on that because it might not be people trying to kill us with rocks, but it can be problems. We live in a fallen world and a fallen body surrounded by our own sin and the sin of others. And there's constant pressure. And in the course of all of that pressure, sometimes it's easy to think, God, you're taking me out. But the reality is that pressure, he's putting you in the game. He's putting you in the game. We will see in the book of Acts that persecution is how we get on the field. Problems are how we get on the field. Issues are how we get on the field when we bow our knee and say, God, use this. Let me be an agent of mercy and grace. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your grace. Send me into the game. I'm not going to say I'm I'm sidelined until everything gets all in order. Nothing gets in order. And when we're waiting for things to get in order, that's basically code word for it. That's when I don't want to pray. Persecution is the way he uses it. That's the environment that the, the mission is to advance. Three, Following Jesus will cost you everything. That's a pretty obvious point there. In Stephen's case, it literally was his life. But for us, it's our life, and it might be a slow death of 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Dying to your agendas, dying to your own vision for what you want, dying to your own image, dying to your own perceptions that you want people to think of you, dying to all of that all the time. But here's the fourth point. The sinners and the rebels are not in control. God is. Stephen sees God and Jesus there, and he realizes these guys aren't in control. That's why he could pray for forgiveness. He's not thinking, well, if I, don't, if, I, if I withhold forgiveness and we punish them, then, see, I'm just enabling them. Grace just enables people to sin more. No, it doesn't. God's in control. The sinners don't control it. God does. Stephen saw that. That's why he could pray for grace. And it's pretty clear. God saved Paul. Paul launches a movement. And the fifth point. God's vision and outcome for your life and your problems are bigger than you could ever imagine. I don't think Stephen would have understood the impact of that prayer. Could have ever understood. And the situation of your life might be so huge and so powerful that you feel like rocks are coming at your head and you're going to die. 
And I'm just telling you that the outcome that we see in the book of Acts at those moments are always bigger than what anyone could have ever imagined. That's why we walk by faith. We believe, yes, this is huge. All right, I've said a lot here, so let me just take time just to close in prayer. There's so much here. I would encourage you to go back and read this again this afternoon. There's many things we missed, but please don't don't miss the truth that's there. But let's just pray. God, I thank you for this powerful sermon of Stephen who reminds us the earth is yours. You're everywhere. We are in your presence. You don't dwell in places that we make. Lord, there's two things we should walk away from here, that we would be people full of grace, full of power. Lord, fill us with your word and the grace to deliver it. And Lord, may truth and love so reign in our hearts that you advance your kingdom through us. And Lord, the problems that are here in our church, the problems in people's lives, the pains that we're going through, Lord, I am confident that you use these things in ways beyond what we could have ever imagined. So God, fill us with hope. Whatever the outcome, fill us with your hope. You're in control. In Christ's name, amen.